Um, Open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I just want to uh, reiterate what Ethan already said, and um, just thank, thank you all so much, those that participated and, and helped with the trunk or treat last night. Um, wow. That was unreal. Um, it's just, that was a lot of, lot of people, and I don't, I don't say that in like a pat ourselves on the back, like, look, oh, wow, aren't we self-congratulatory? Um, you know, last year, we had just launched our church, and we did a trunk or treat, and we had like 60 cars come, and we thought that was great. I mean, it was great. You know, nobody had ever heard of us. We literally had existed for a whole month. And um, it's just, I don't know, it's just amazing to see God work. And um, we can just be faithful in what he's called us to do with our part of what he's given us to do. And won't he do it? And so I just want to I just want to give us that perspective, I guess, that, that God, is, God is at work in our community, in our city, and we get to work on a little part of that, and isn't that cool? It's a privilege to serve in his kingdom. Um, just a, a, a quick update um, for prayer things. Um, Kara, my wife, will be having surgery this Wednesday, her first of, I think it's three surgeries. Um, and so if you could just be, just be in prayer for her. Um, also, there are, um, see, now I don't know who's actually authorized me to say, so I won't name, but there are other people um, a couple of other people within our church that are, that are facing um, surgeries coming up. So just be, be praying. Be thankful that we live in a time when um, the likelihood of surviving a surgery is considerably higher than it was uh, once upon a time. And um, I'm, I'm certainly thankful for that. And um, but just be praying, praying that, um, that God would get glory as he guides the hands of the, of the surgeons and, um, and as he works his healing power, um, doctors and medicines and surgeries and things like that, um, are something God uses, but God is the one who heals, and we look to him, um, not to man, for that, and so we, um, we just want to lift that up before God this morning. Let's, um, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we approach his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to gather like this and to, to be fed by the milk and meat of your word, to be reminded of the gospel, and yet also to dig deeper into very specific things and see that, they all, that it matters, it all matters. God, give us understanding this morning. Um, God, the mystery of you sending your son, who is your son, but is also God, but has also at the same time become man, to be a sacrifice for our sin and then give us righteousness. God, this is such a mystery that is so hard for us to understand. And yet you've given it to us in your word. And you haven't left us with just this cloud shrouding this mystery, but you have, through your Spirit, spoken through apostles and and the writers of scriptures to help us to understand these things. And so, God, I pray that your Spirit would give us understanding, illuminate your word this morning as we approach it. God, give me clarity as I speak. 
God, thank you for 2,000 years of church history. Many, many faithful believers digging deep into the same scriptures, working hard to understand this and to help us today understand the truth in your word. God, I thank you for that. We stand on the shoulders of giants. God, be with our church as we, as we uh, seek to love our community and share the truth of your love and your gospel with them. God, I pray that you would um, not only give us opportunities to meet our neighbors like last night, but give us opportunities to invite them to meet and follow Jesus. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the... One of the pieces that is a, you know, we would, we would say is kind of a, a vision piece for neighborhood church that we want to make sure that we are doing is we want to clearly define Jesus in the hearts and minds of people. And what we mean by that is that here in the American South, most people have some concept of who Jesus is. That is, who, that, that is they've, they've heard of him, and they have some idea of who he is. Um, however, if you've spent any time sharing the gospel with people, or attempting to, or just talking about Jesus to other people, you will quickly find out that many, 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 many people have an idea of who Jesus is that does not actually correspond to the Jesus we read about in the Bible. And so when we say we want to clearly define Jesus in the hearts and minds of people, we want, to, we want to present a biblical Jesus and to help people see um, where you know, our misconceptions of Jesus um, collide with Scripture. And, and we, want to, we want to have the humility, even in our own hearts, to be willing to submit to Scripture um, when it says something contrary to what we thought we'd figured out. Um, and so I don't know where, where all, of, all of y'all are at this morning in your um, ideas of who Jesus is. I know many of you and have a pretty good idea, but um, we're going to talk about something this morning that is, that is difficult, and it is in, um, in theology, this is called the hypostatic union. That sounds like we are going sci-fi this morning, and we are not. Um, it just sounds really cool. Um, the hypostatic union, you do not need to write that down or even remember it. That's just the theological term for it. Um, that's not in scripture, so I don't care if you don't remember it. But, but what that means is it is, it, is the, it is the doctrine which explores the dual nature of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That he is God and he is man. At the same time. But how much is he the one and how much is he the other and is he a mixture of the two? Anyway, these are, these are finer points and difficulties that the church has struggled with. I mean, these are some of the earliest things that the church struggled with. I mean, let's zoom out from our assumptions. You know, we, we learned from, many of us learned from an early age, Jesus is God with skin on who came as a baby, died for our sins, rose from the dead and returned to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. Most of us grew up learning that and we just accept it. But you need to understand, the early church 
This is hard to get your head around. God, whom we know and have worshipped for so long, has somehow kind of become like us, but isn't like us. It did something for us, and so have some, let's have some grace for the uh, struggles of the early church. But, but I want to talk this morning, as we explore this, about why it is important that Jesus is God, and also why it is important that Jesus is human. So as we, as we turn, if you turn in your Bible to see Hebrews chapter 2, uh, by a quick review, last, last Sunday we talked about um, more deep theology stuff. We talked about dispensationalism, which is this big word that basically means God has spoken to man and interacted with man differently throughout different periods of time. Those are what we call dispensations, different Times throughout history that God has related to man and communicated himself to man or revealed himself to man in different ways through different times, but in a way that is progressive across the timeline from not knowing him to knowing him fully someday in eternity. And so that's basically all that means. We talked about that last week, but we didn't spend a lot of time, and I'm not going to completely review chapter one, but we didn't spend a lot of time um, on the, the, the content of chapter 1, mostly because most of us already have assumed it and accept it. Um, and Kara, when you're done with that, can I have the rest of that bottle of water? Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, wait, did you want it? Why don't you have some and then I'll have the rest. Okay, um, thank you. Chapter 1 and 2 of Hebrews is... One of some of the passages in Scripture where we build the doctrine of the hypostatic union most fully. Chapter one, Jesus is God. Chapter two, Jesus is man. And and so it, it's important. We, we these two these two chapters are next to each other on, on purpose. And um, so let's let's look here. Why is it important that Jesus is God? So from chapter 1, this here's your review um, of all the things that we uh, didn't talk about last week. Um, first, only God can forgive sin. Uh, we, we, see that in, we see that in the, um, in the, in the Gospels when Jesus uh, heals the paralytic man. He says, which do you, he says um, the, the, the guy wants to be healed so he can walk. And Jesus says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees get extremely upset about that. Why? That is a claim to be God. Only God has the authority to forgive sin because only God is the, God is the only one who made the rules, who defined what sin is. God is the one who is, who is sinned against when we sin. And so only God has the authority to forgive sin. So it's a really important that Jesus is God. Um, also, he made many claims that he was God. If, if you, how many of you have ever uh, debated religion with a friend and heard someone say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God? Have you, ever, have you heard that one? That's actually a surprisingly popular one, and I'm not really sure why. It, it, I mean, it stems from 
It stems from a, 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 well, obviously a lot of misunderstanding, but I mean, sure, when you read scripture in English, at no point does Jesus say, I am God. However, scripture wasn't written in English. It was, you know, written, the New Testament, it was mostly written in Greek, and there are very clear claims to deity if you, underst- if you are hearing it the way the people standing there would have heard it in those days. So, really, if you just look for, look for places where the Pharisees get super, super mad, um, and then read what he said right before that, he claimed to be God. Um, many times he, he invokes titles from the Old Testament, such as Son of Man, or uh, I Am, and things like that. I mean, he says at one point, before Abraham was... I am. Get your head around that one. That's a fun time travel conversation there. But before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be God. And many, many, many times in, uh, throughout the Gospels, he made claims to be God. Um, I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father but through me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. All of these um, All of these things were claims to deity. Um, Here's another thing. Only God could fully and perfectly meet God's own standard of holiness set forth in the law. When when God gives his law to the nation of Israel in, um, in Exodus and then Deuteronomy and then, you know, more in Leviticus, I mean, you read all this, only God can meet this. Oh, sure, people could, could find ways to re- strictly follow certain parts of it. But if you broke one part of the law, you broke the whole law. And so the only one who could perfectly keep the law was God himself, because only God is that holy. Only God is pure and holy enough to qualify as the perfect sacrifice for all humanity. Um, that we'll get into later in Hebrews as he discusses that. Um, so then also, why is it important that Jesus is human? Well, let's pause here and read Hebrews chapter 2. Um, so we're going to pick up, we're going to actually pick it up in verse 5, because that's where we left it off last week. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That's the first time he mentions Jesus. That's where it becomes clear. That's who he's talking about. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children children God has given me. Okay, these are like 
lightning round snippets from the Old Testament that none of us can pin, like we don't even know where, well, you can look down in your footnotes and you might see the references for where these are. Remember, he is writing to people with a very good working knowledge of the Old Testament, um, probably better than yours and mine. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God bless the reading of his word. So as we look at at chapter 2, some things that immediately stand out of why is it important Also, not only that Jesus was God, but why is it important that Jesus is human? Well, let's look at a couple of things. One, God cannot die. Yet Jesus had to die to be the perfect sacrifice. And so he had to become man to even be able to do that. Another one, the law was given to humans. So he had to be human for keeping it to even count. Um. Yeah, he had to become that which the law was given to. In other words, man, um, in order to keep the law and for that to count for us. Uh, As the righteous judge of all mankind, being human eliminates the excuses. The excuses we might bring, like, well, you know, you don't don't know what it's like. You you know, you pronounce judgment, but you don't understand. I, I don't think anyone will be standing before the throne of the judgment throne saying things like this to the great I am. However, it does eliminate even the suspicion of those things. Yes, the righteous judge does in fact understand what it is like to be human. And then also, like we see here at the end of the chapter, as the great high priest of all mankind, being human shows us his empathy. Um, Another point, and and this kind of crosses over, if you want to keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 2 and turn to Romans chapter 5, specifically verse 12, um, turn back a little bit. If you hit Acts or Corinthians, it's in between. Uh, Romans chapter 5. Is, uh, is where Paul is, is making a very similar case. Uh, he's expounding on it a little bit more, and he's talking to a Western audience, so he uses a lot less, um, a lot less Old Testament quotations directly, which is why the American church, as, the American, Christ, as American Christians, we tend to gravitate toward Romans more than we gravitate toward Hebrews. Um, in Romans chapter 5, uh, particularly in verse 12, um, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, <clears throat> oh, and then we got to skip down. 
and I didn't mark a verse. Um, anyway, he makes the point. If somebody can find it for me. Um, he makes the point later that, that death, death and sin enter through one man, and so also then forgiveness and life comes to all men through one man. The point is basically it took one person to break God's law for all of us. And likewise, it takes one person, one man, to perfectly keep God's law for everyone. Um, <clears throat> we'll get into that more as we, as we dig into this. So let's look at this. The consequences of Adam's breaking of God's law extended to all his progeny, all, all of his descendants. And, and, and not like it's just, and it's not even just like it's passed down. It, because, because all people are descended from the first two people, we are in this, I don't know, think of it as like a, in, a, in a genetic sense, we are, we are within them. And so, and so when Adam and Eve sin, when they sinned, it's as though all of us sinned because we're all there. The genetic material for every person living ever is there, present in that act of rebellion against the creator. The consequences of Adam's breaking of God's law extend to all his descendants. All humans, therefore, have a sin nature, which according to Romans 5, is passed down through the fathers to the children. Jesus was the only human ever conceived without a human father and therefore did not inherit a sin nature. The sin nature came after the fall, though, so he still had a true and full human nature, but without sin. See, for us, we don't, we don't really have a way to separate our human nature from our sin nature because we just get both. But remember, there was a human nature before sin, but then after sin, that, that sin nature gets bundled together. And, and in a, in a, you know, without spending a bunch of time on this, it's, it's that you know, the, the sin nature is passed to each person from their father. Which seems arbitrary until you realize that's why the prophecy matters that Jesus is born of a virgin without a human father. And so, uh, let, let's think of it this way. Only three humans have ever existed without sin. And all three came to be in this world exclusively by the will of God, not of man. Uh, John, John 1.13 um, makes this point that, that, uh, that Jesus is born not by the will or desire of man. Um, Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Okay, all other humans came into being after Adam and Eve's rebellion, and one way or another, through the will of man, um, that, that, you know, they came into being, having already received their due inheritance from Adam, um, who is our, you know, our ultimate descendant. Um, while still, uh, the, Bible, the Bible uses the phrase, in his loins. So, anyway. Um, therefore, to be born of God rather than born of the will of man, like, it said, like he says in, in John 1, excludes one from the inheriting a sin nature since God cannot create that which is not good. Okay, that's kind of a, that's kind of a mind bender. Um, but, but you see, 
it seems like this arbitrary detail until you realize, oh, that, like for everything to be consistent, which let's remember, Scripture always is, God's paradigm is consistent with itself. We do not find contradictions within Scripture. And so we see <clears throat> that Jesus has a human nature without a sin nature. Jesus is called, um, in other places, the second Adam. Uh, but there's a huge difference. Adam was not God. And though created by the will of God without sin, he was weak enough in his flesh to fall to it. By contrast, Jesus became human by being conceived by the will of God. I didn't say came into existence. Jesus already existed as the second person of the Trinity. Already exists, but he, he becomes human and puts skin on um, by being conceived by the will of God. Yet he is and always was God even before that. And as much as, and as, much as, uh, as such, was able to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil and remain sinless. Okay, um, you, can, you can turn back to Romans chapter 2 here. Okay, so what I want, what I want to do is, is point out, I'm, I'm going to take us through a little journey. And this is going to seem real academic at first. I, I promise, we're going to land the plane and it doesn't matter if you don't remember the names of any of these. Um, but I just want to take us on a quick journey through the first few hundred years of church history and, and, and point out that the nature of Christ was one of the earliest mysteries that believers struggled to get their heads around. And it matters. It's really important. Hebrews 1 and 2, I mean, really the whole book of Hebrews, but I mean, especially these first couple of verses, like he's making the point, whoever wrote Hebrews is making the point, this matters a lot, that he's totally God and totally man. He had to be totally both at the same time. And so I, I want to, we're going to go all the way back to um, 325 AD. Don't write that down. You don't need to remember that. Um, <clears throat> some, some church councils, um, in response to uh, popular heresies uh, regarding the nature of Jesus. So the, the first council of Nicaea um, was in AD uh, 325, and um, this addressed the heresy of Arianism. You don't need to remember that either, but that basically claims that Jesus was a created being, created by God as the first act of creation. So, so Arianism, this, uh, there was a guy, Arius, he was like a bishop in the church back then, and uh, an influential church leader, and he was teaching this, that, that Jesus had some divine nature, but he's not totally God. He was the first created being before all the rest of creation. Remember that, that verse, the firstborn among all creation? He took that to mean that God created him, uh, but created him first. It's a heresy. And, and, and so, therefore, Jesus' divine nature was like God, but not truly God. Well, let's see. What are beings that God created that are heavenly and not human? Angels. And what does Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 keep coming back to? He's not an angel. It was not to angels that he said. You see, this is why it's important. Jesus is not an angelic being. He is not a, a heavenly being that was created. He's God. Hebrews makes this over and over. To which of the angels has he said? Okay. Now, um, out of that, 
out of that, um, that council came the Nicene Creed, and also a very faithful um, attender, I believe, of that council was Athanasius. And he um, wrote, or was credited with, the Athanasian Creed. It's long. We're not going to read the whole thing. But part of it, regarding the nature of Christ, says this. It, so Basically, faithful church leaders are getting together from around the world and saying, okay, hold on, there is a really unbiblical idea floating around. We've got to address this. Um, first of all, let's search scriptures and make sure we're not wrong, but like, we, need to, we need to kind of get together and figure out how, how do we articulate this mystery in a way that's faithful to the scriptures to our people. And so they, they came up with this, the Athanasian Creed in English, it says, um, Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father, as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational, soul, and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Um, there's much more in that. The Athanasian Creed does a, a very good job of defending the, the Trinity and uh, the dis distinctives of the persons of the Trinity and yet the unity of them. Um, but it comes up again, like, what is this, 60, 60 years later in, uh, in, in 381 AD. Uh, so there's another council, the Council of uh, Constantinople. The, the church leaders get together again, and there's a new heresy floating around. Um, Apollinarianism. You don't need to write that down. Um, that's almost a whole line. That's how long that word is. It's some guy named Apollinarius or something. Um, another influential uh, teacher in the church is teaching an idea about Christ that is not biblical. He's teaching that Jesus' divine nature completely displaced his human nature. So he's, he's God just with skin on. He's got a human body. Yeah, he's, he is human, but, like, but he's totally God. And since God can't, you know, in this guy's view, God can't, can't put on the limitations of man. And so he's acting as a man and he is in human flesh, but his nature is completely God's nature. So therefore, not truly human. You see, this matters. This matters. That's, that's a heresy that, that, that teaches a view of God. Like he's, he's so totally God that he's not totally human. Well, Hebrews, Hebrews um, 2 makes it really clear. He was completely human. And there's reasons why that's important for his high priesthood and his righteous judgment. About 50 years later, again. Church leaders get together again. The Council of Ephesus. New heresy. Nestorianism. You don't need to write this down either. You're welcome to write these down. But I didn't put them on the slides on purpose because I don't want you to feel like this is the takeaway. 
Nestorianism, which affirmed that Jesus was both God and man, but emphasized the disunity of the human and divine natures to the extent of claiming that he was essentially two persons sharing one body, not one person who is truly God and truly man at the same time. So another heresy that, he, that he's, you know, it's, it's one body, and there's like, a, there's like a human in there, but like there's also God in there. And so like, you know, there's this, there's this disunity within Christ that like he's got this human side that can cry um, when Jesus wept and, and felt human feelings. But then like there's a, this whole separate God that doesn't work either. He is one person, one Christ. There is this... Um, <clears throat> Right, anyway. Um, and, and then we get to the uh, Council of Chalcedon, which was only 20 years after that. So you see, this, this, is, this just keeps coming up. I mean, it is, it is conceivable that, I mean, there were people alive for multiple of these, of these councils. Church leaders get together again. Another guy named Eutyches is teaching um, Basically, Apollinarianism recycled, you know, the idea that, that Jesus is, uh, well, let's see, what was that one? That, that, he, that he's so totally God that he's not, like, he's man, but not totally man. Um, it's just kind of another version of that. And at the Council of Chalcedon, they realized, okay, and there were other things they had to address, but they realized, okay, we have got to come up with a way to articulate this, that people can get their heads around it as best we can. Because this keeps coming up, these unbiblical views of who Jesus is. And so, um, so anyway, at this council, this and the previous heresies were all condemned, and the previous church council's decisions were upheld. Um, but with so many ideas floating around making various claims regarding to just how divine or just how human Jesus really was, each, with conflicting, each conflicting with one or more statements from Scripture, revealed to them the need to come up with a biblically accurate way to articulate the complexities of the person and nature of Christ. Like, can we all agree, this is a hard thing to explain to people. <laughs> it's a hard thing to explain to ourselves. And so the Chalcedonian Creed, and I, I am reading a couple of creeds this morning. I, I want to be clear. So like, our church tradition in the Brethren movement rejects the use of creeds. That doesn't mean we're not allowed to read them. It means we don't require people to say words that man wrote that are not scripture in order to be considered a Christian and part of the church. We still stand on the shoulders of these um, church fathers from the past. So the Chalcedonian Creed addresses this and it says this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, but without sin, Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, 
inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So there you go. There's the Chalcedonian Creed. There is, there is some church history in a, I guess, a nutshell. Um, there's our walk through history. Here's why I, why I felt like I wanted to go there this morning. One, this is really interesting stuff to me that I learned this week. Um, but it also shows us something. It shows us what Hebrews 2 calls... Um, Hebrews 2, there at the end, mentions the devil who, who has the power of death. It is important for us to recognize that the devil's attack on who God is has never let up. It is important for us to, you know, we, we look at some of these and some of them are like, oh, come on. And others of them are like, okay, actually, I kind of... I kind of always wondered about that. Or maybe you, you heard some of these and you thought, yeah, I thought that was right. Ooh, okay, I guess that's wrong. Um, even though these seem like ancient, ancient ideas, these ideas about, God, about Jesus you know, not being fully God or not being fully and truly man are still floating around today. And, and here's, here's what I want to show you. In, in the church today... We have this, this really fun idea called the prosperity gospel. Now, I can preach and have preached whole sermons on this and will probably continue to. Um, but I want to, I want to articulate for you this morning, share with you one that is currently floating around in books that are currently in publication by an author who is currently still preaching every Sunday and most Sundays at Bethel Church in Redding, California. Yes. Well, name and shame. Bill Johnson. <clears throat> um, the, their church is, uh, is kind of the spearhead of the New Apostolic Reformation, um, which has all kinds of problems. Um, but this is, I hope, very clear for us all. Um, he wrote this in a book, so it's not, this wasn't an offhand comment. This, this made it to publication. Jesus chose to live in the limitations of a man, dependent on the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he was living in what was possible for us. Oh, there it is. It doesn't come from, this is, oh yeah, this is his statement clarifying what he wrote, which I'll read you in a second. It doesn't really clarify. <clears throat> it doesn't come from questioning his divinity. It just comes from the choice he would make to live a style that can be followed by those who have no sin and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, they, they teach, and I'm, I'm using Bethel Church as in, this guy from Bethel Church as an example, but there are a whole host of churches with various versions of this prosperity gospel. And in a nutshell, it's this. 
Jesus showed you what you can do. Miracles and healings and all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, That's the idea. You know, the, the, the power of uh, healing through faith is within you, and it's also dependent on you. Oh, sure, the, the power comes from God, but, but it's got to, in order for it to come through you, you've got to hold up your end, and Jesus showed us how to do that. This is not the gospel. He wrote in his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, quote, Jesus Christ said of himself, the Son can do nothing. In the Greek language, that word nothing has a unique meaning. It means nothing, just like it does in English. He had no supernatural capabilities whatsoever. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. I think we disagree strongly. And again, in another book, The Supernatural Power of a Transformed Mind, Access to a Life of Miracles, Johnson writes, Jesus had no ability to heal the sick. Well, tell that to the sick people he healed. He couldn't cast out devils, and he had no ability to raise the dead. He said of himself in John 5.19, the son can do nothing of himself. He had set aside his divinity. Ah, That's where he's getting it. He did miracles as a man in right relationship with God because he was setting forth a model for us, something for us to follow. Jesus so emptied himself that he was incapable of doing what was required of him by the Father without the Father's help. I share that with you this morning because this journey through church history seems like we're exploring, you know, we're kind of looking at, oh man, look at all these crazy ideas people used to have about Jesus. There's nothing new under the sun. These same ideas are being recycled. We have to pay attention. The Bible says that our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, if he can get us to see Jesus as anything other than who he really is, he chips away at the very foundation of our faith. You see, a a false Jesus can't save you. Hebrews 1 and 2 are making very clear, a Jesus that isn't totally God and also totally man cannot do what was required to bring about the forgiveness of our sins. The devil's oldest trick, this is literally, if this right here is the only thing you remember that I said this morning, please remember this. Wow, I should have made this so you could write it down. The devil's oldest trick is to get us to believe that God is like us. Because if we believe that God is like us, then we will believe that we can be like God. And if we believe that we can be like God, then we will think we don't need God. That was the serpent's trick in the Garden of Eden. Eat this and you will be like God. And it is still his trick today. You can do what Jesus did because you can be like God.
this attack, this temptation to believe wrongly about Jesus and to be, believe wrongly about God being like us, it's true for unbelievers and believers alike. For those that don't believe and have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this belief that God is like us, we can be like God and we don't need God, makes it really easy to keep resisting. It makes it possible to not see our need for God's forgiveness. And similarly for believers... It can cause us not to depend on God in all parts of our lives. I need you, thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. That old hymn is so true. We need him in everything. We are completely dependent on him. And that's a good thing. It is a good thing that God is not like us. How could he help us if he was just like us? And yet, without setting aside his godness, his divinity, Jesus became like us so that he could fulfill God's law and make the payment for our sin. You see, Jesus did not show us what we can do. He showed us what only he can do. When Jesus performs all of his miracles and heals the sick and raises the dead and cleanses lepers and drives out demons, all of that is to show us not what we could do. It is to demonstrate that he is God. Like us, and yet not like us. That is, like us in his flesh, and yet in his person. Very much, truly and fully God. Okay, so because Jesus is God and man. I want to read again this last section um, of uh, Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means, that means the sacrifice that satisfies completely the wrath of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Just a couple of of points as I close by way of application. Because Jesus is God and man, you see, because death is certain for us, we naturally live with an inherent fear of it. 
I mean, let's be honest, if, if you didn't fear death at all, um, you might do some very irresponsible things and uh, come to a very untimely and early end. Um, when you're visiting the Grand Canyon, it is important to have a some healthy fear of death because one more step and you're going to fall for a whole mile and then be dead. Um, <clears throat> You drive more safely for all of us when we have a healthy fear of death. Some of you um, should have a little more. Um, <clears throat> but the, but the, the, the real fear of dying, the fear of this life ending, I mean beyond just like, oh, I shouldn't do that because that will harm me and uh, end my life, but rather the fear of I can't let go, I can't die because I'm not ready. I can't die because I don't know what comes next. That fear, that fear is a form of slavery. Scripture says you are slaves to whom you obey. And when that fear of death controls you, and I don't mean the healthy kind of fear of death, the fear of this life ending, when that is a controlling fear in your life, that's a form of slavery. You see, he freed us from that slavery by giving us the hope of life beyond this life. Have you been freed from that bondage? If not, you can trade fear for hope right now by putting your faith in Jesus as your only way to eternal life. If you've been set free already, are you still living in fear? Have you, have you really grasped the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus? The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like Selfishly, it's better for me if I do die, I get to go be with Jesus. But to live, I get to keep serving him. It's a win-win. His perspective on life and death was completely wrapped up in the hope that was to come. And yet commitment to serve as long as Jesus allowed him to continue to draw breath. Another point here is that um, he gets us. He understands. As, a, as our high priest, he is faithful and merciful. Just by way of reflection, is there something you've done that deep down you dread the day that you have to face Jesus and answer for? I want to tell you, he already knows about it. And he's already taken the punishment for it. He is faithful. He hasn't forgotten anything. And he's also merciful, which means he will not hold over your head sin that he has forgiven and died for. And lastly, having suffered temptation, he knows your need for help. Are you suffering this morning under the incredible weight of temptation? Call out to Jesus. He knows your struggle. And he offers you a way of escape. The Bible says that we are never tempted beyond our ability to resist through his strength because he has always provided a way of escape. He will show you that way. Learn to set your eyes upon him. 
And when you do, your desires and affections will slowly but surely incline to Jesus and his will for your life. And he will help you in his strength. It really matters that Jesus was truly God and truly man. It is really important that we believe Jesus is who he says he is, is who scripture says he is. Because it all matters. It all connects together. A false Jesus cannot save you, but the Jesus of scripture can. We pray with me. Our God and Father, it is with great humility that we recognize that we have the privilege to call you Father because of the atoning work of your Son, the only begotten. All the rest of us are adopted and yet loved and yet given an inheritance and yet given a name. God, we, we think of the song we sang early, earlier. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. God, thank you. Thank you. The gift of your son. Jesus, thank you for coming. Not to show us what we could do, but to show us what only you can do. God, remind us constantly of our full and complete dependence on you. Thank you for your word that is always true, always faithful, and always in agreement with the rest of your word. Help us to search the scriptures daily to make sure we are believing things about you that are true. Commit this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work with us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's go and be his witnesses. Amen.